Okay, so let's get started with um, prayer here this morning before we get going. Lord, I just come to you and I thank you for today. I thank you for the ladies that are here. I pray that as we study upon your parables here that you taught, that we'd be able to understand. Give us hearts to understand what you're saying and where it needs to hit us personally. And I pray for the Holy Spirit to be on all of us. And I ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so today we are looking at Luke 15. So if you want to turn there. We're looking at the three lost parables, and that's the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. And through this whole time, what Marsh and I were gearing and what our intention was, was that we would be able to look upon the parables in Jesus' teaching and see what he's saying about the kingdom and some of those insights that are revealed as he teaches. And as we went along here, we started out week one talking about the cost of the kingdom, that it will cost you everything, but the joy that it gives is worth everything. And the next week when I taught in um, Luke 14, we um, were looking at what it, you know, if you're called to be a part of the kingdom, it's a call to discipleship too. And what that means is loving God, loving Jesus. And he even used harsh language, you know, of um hating everybody else and loving him. Of course, that's not what's meant, but it's meant to say he's our priority. He's our love priority. And then last week, when Marcia spoke about the parables of the soil, it was a call to us to the power of the word in our life, the power of the word in other people's life, and how we're called and the insight to come around and grow the kingdom through, you know, sharing and, and shining. And this week, um, it's really quite a beautiful lesson. The two insights that we're looking at today is the mission of the kingdom in the heart of the kingdom, um, the king's mission and the king's heart, essentially. And when you walk away today, I hope that you'll be feeling rejoiced, but you know, about being a part of the kingdom and, and what God has done, you know, by calling us to him. So let's look at um, 15, one through two. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now in your outline there, I wrote, the Pharisees had established themselves as righteous men, and anyone who did not fit into that mold was considered a sinner. And from their perspective, what Jesus was doing was unclean. It wasn't typical. It's not what they did. They, those people were a lower class set of people, the sinners, the tax collectors, and they weren't welcomed into the fold. You know, they were to be kept at a distance. And you think about um, Jesus and all he's saying in these kingdoms, because so far through the Pharisees' influence, the, the religious pious people and their influence have been misrepresenting the kingdom. And he's come to turn it around. And we studied that in the Beatitudes too. It was like all the commentary said Jesus was turning the kingdom upside down because what they thought was and what they were teaching was in fact wrong. It's more about a heart than it is a a surface change. So I pulled up these scriptures in Matthew 23. So if you would just kind of bookmark where you're at and turn to Matthew. These are the woes that Jesus says to the, to the Pharisees, you know, and to the disciples and the teachers. So what he's doing is he's exposing the falseness of their teaching and what they're actually about. So Matthew 23, 3 through 6. Does somebody want to read that? Matthew 23, 3 through 6. So practice and obey whatever they tell you, 
but don't follow their example, for they don't practice what they teach. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. Everything they do is for show. On their arms, they wear extra wide prayer boxes with scripture verses inside, and they wear robes with extra long tassels. And they love to sit at the head table at banquets and in seats of honor in the synagogues. Okay, so the banquet seating, we had a parable about that. So they're going the wrong way. They're doing things for, for show, for men. They're not going after hearts. They're not going inward. Okay, so now let's look at Matthew twenty three thirteen. Can somebody read that? to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Okay, so that's more strong, shutting the kingdom in the, you know, of heaven in men's faces, and that's what we're going to talk about today. That, that slur, that muttering they just talked about, you know, you eat with, you know, kind of questioning and um, I don't know, judging Jesus, questioning what he's doing, is exactly what Jesus is saying they ought not to be doing. Okay, so Matthew 23, 25 to 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they're full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Okay, thank you. So you can see how misguided that they are. And Jesus talks about it again and again. So his kingdom and his parables are, are truths for us to learn and, and for them back in the day to learn from. And how ironic in their muttering where they talk about, you know, um, the matters that Jesus is with the lost and actually how ironic is that they're actually very misguided in what they're thinking. And um, praise God that Jesus came to teach and let us know, because where would we be? You know, if it continued on as it had, you know, think about that. So um, the last thing I want to look at is um, John 5, 39 to 41 to figure out what's going on here. What's what's happening in the, with the Pharisees? So John 5, 39, this is Jesus talking. You diligently study the scriptures because you think by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me and to have life. I do not accept praise from men, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of the God in your hearts. I have come from the Father's name and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. So in verse 43, what is ultimately going on with the Pharisees? It's revealed. They're not accepting him. They're not accepting him. They do not have the love of God in their hearts is what's happening. And, and Jesus did, and that Messiah did not fit their mold. It was about their religious, you know, being above everybody. And he didn't fit that. He was going to the unclean. He was searching for the lost, all things they didn't do. 
You know, you had to be in their group in order to be accepted. So in John 3, 16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. Whoever would believe would have eternal life. The whosoever, it's not limited to just the religious, you know, pious people. And he didn't come to condemn, he came to save. So what is Jesus' mission? Seek and save those that are lost. Seek and save those that are lost. And he's going to explain that very clearly in these next three parables. I was thinking about, and I don't want to look up all these scriptures because I also have a short little music video type thing that we're going to look at. Also in your outline, I was reading through it and eek, this next sentence should actually read New Testament examples of Jesus demonstrating his mercy. So I kind of, if that's not good English, <laughs> that sentence typos. But let's think for a minute. Let's brainstorm without looking. Who are some people in the New Testament that you can think of that might have really set off these Pharisees, particular people that he helped and loved on? Can you think? The woman at the well. The woman at the well. That's John 4, 39 to 42. So um, I love that part in Scripture when Jesus said he had to go that way. He had to go seek her out. And it confused even the disciples. Like, we don't go this way. We don't, you know. So good one. That's the second one. The woman caught in adultery. Yep, and that's John 8. That's the first one. The woman caught in adultery. The other two are tax collectors. So Luke 5, 29 to 32 is Levi the tax collector. And then Luke 19 is the chief ta tax collector. Anybody? Zacchaeus. Yeah, Zacchaeus. Yep, so all these things were happening, so then and they didn't like it. And these are just, you know, some examples of him demonstrating his mercy. So let's turn back to Luke now and start with these parables and start with the first one here. As I'm reading it, think about who is the shepherd, who is the woman, who is the lost sheep, who is the lost coin, who is Jesus talking to, and, and you know, who's the audience and what's happening here. So I'm going to start, um, I'm just going to read the first, all of it over again here in, in um, Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who represents, who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And then we read what's called the twin parable, reiterating the point. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and her neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my last coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is more rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So Jesus has taken the opportunity to teach all those woes that he was talking about because of the slur 
or muttering of the Pharisees. And they're essentially questioning his motives and, and, and judging it a little bit and, and challenging him. Why are you communing with these sinners? That's not what we do. Um, and to do so would bring about even like a defile. Like it was a big deal that he was talking to them. It wasn't just, you know, maybe like it, it would be today, I guess. Um, but for a rabbi to be associating with this low-class type of people would have been a disgusting sight, you know, in their eyes. So I want you to think about, I want to really think about these people that are sinners. They know they're sinners. And um, to hear people, just think about yourself for a minute, to hear people talk about you in front of you as being a lower-class person, how does that sit? like you're a non-person right it's like you're a non-person you already know how they feel but then to hear them say it in front of you you know that kind of feeling and then I was thinking you know you don't hear that too much today I guess I, I mean I don't think I've experienced that tons in my life probably more when I was younger but I started thinking too sometimes I'm my own worst critic you know thinking about how worthless maybe I am or things I'm not doing right or getting so down on myself you know that kind of that self-hatred and and just how that feels so I want you to think about their shoes for a little bit here before um you know as we're talking through this so who represents who 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 do you suppose Jesus is referring to when he's talking about the shepherd and the woman in these two parables who do you think that represents they hear someone say the Lord yeah God the Lord and it's not insignificant that he included a woman in his parables. Exactly. Mm-hmm. How about lost sheep, lost coin? That's us. <laughs> That's us. We're before we came to and I and I think it's both. I think it's us now too, sinners. You know, we sin every you know daily, and then also the unsaved people, the people that were in their audience. So what do these two things have in common? They have at least three things in common. It should be pretty easy to answer. What do the lost sheep, the lost coin parables have in common? They're both lost. They're both about loss. They're both about the pursuit. And the celebration. And the celebration. And they both have a stern comment at the end. A warning to the Pharisees. As I was studying upon this, you know, I'd probably read this 25 times or so, and I continue to read it and think and plan and all this. And I was one day I was sitting there and I was thinking about it, and I looked at verse 3, and it said, Then Jesus told them this parable. And I was thinking about the them. Who's the them that we find out from the first two verses? Who's included in them? Pharisees. Pharisees. Sinners. You know, tax collectors, the teachers of the law. And somehow I was stuck a little bit. I was stuck and continuously thinking he's answering the question. He's answering their question, and he is. But it's not the only thing he's answering, if you think and look about this, that, yes, they had a wide gap of understanding what the kingdom was about, and Jesus was addressing this. But then I started thinking about last week, um, in Luke, or not last week, two weeks ago, in Luke 14, and we're talking about the great parable. And Jesus says, go out and make them come. Compel them to come. And we talked about why he had, why had to be compelled. Because these people don't feel like they're worthy, right? They've been pushed down by society. I'm sure they have their own mental things going through their head. They don't feel like they should be accepted. 
And when you read this again and you think about Jesus talking to them specifically, I kind of see Jesus and think about Jesus saying, well, I'm way worse than you thought, Pharisees. Not only do I welcome them, but I search after them. I love them. I rejoice over them. And they are mine. You know, and think about that when we talked just a little bit earlier about how that feels if someone were to call you out right in front of you and you already feel bad about yourself, to know that you had a Savior. It's no wonder they came and, and felt comfortable coming in droves and large groups to say, this man loves me and this God teaches with authority, you know? So think about that. It's not only a welcoming, it's love, it's rejoice, it's searching, and he's happy to do it. So what big truths, we're talking about the parables and they have big truths in them. What do you discern then for the big truths to be to the lost sinners? What's the truth? Jesus welcomes them. Jesus welcomes them. They're valued. They're valued. They're worth the trouble. We find for them God is pursuing them. He's not passively being like, wait till they get it all together. A big truth, too, is mercy and forgiveness. You know, if you think about a wandering sheep, you might have a tendency to say, why did you do this? You know, or punish or discipline, you know, but no, takes them on the shoulders, carries them carries them through. And at the close of each parable, verses 7 and 10, Jesus says to them, I tell, what does he say? I tell you. So he's talking both to the, the sinners and the tax collectors, and then he's specifically saying to the Pharisees, what is he saying? What are the truths? If you had to summarize what he's saying, don't say what he actually said, but what is he saying? What is he teaching? He's saying you have it wrong. There's a great need to repent. This banquet that they're always so worried about, it includes the sinners. It includes the lost people that have come. And the celebration is because of the inside changes. Not the righteous outside religious, you know, expectations. So I found this cross-reference and um, the people that were learned in scriptures. So Jesus talks about shepherding. Ezekiel the prophet through God talks about shepherding. So I want to go back because they're learned in scriptures. They would have known this. So let's go and just peek at what this says and, and how wonderful it is. Ezekiel 34. And this is something I would encourage today, if you want more reading, to just read 34 in its whole entirety. And think about Jesus being the good shepherd, too, as I'm reading it. Okay, 34, starting in verse 11. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. 
I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when, it, when he is with them, so will I look for my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they scattered on the day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel and the ravines and in all the settlements in the land. I will tend them in a good pasture and mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. They will lie down in good grazing land and there will be, and they will feed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will feed and tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. Here we go, verse 16. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. Skip to 19. Must my flock feed on what you have trampled and drink what you have muddied with your feet? You know, I think about the Pharisees here. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I will judge between, between the fat sheep and the lean sheep because you shove with flank and shoulder, butting all the weak sheep with your horns until you have driven them away. I will save my flock and they will no longer be plundered. I like that Jesus used the sheep thing. They would have known the sheep situation. They were so into themselves and into this exterior religion. It wasn't coming through. It wasn't breaking through. This is how the Pharisees were. And, and Jesus continually teaching in the gospels. This is the way of the kingdom. It's not as you think it is. You've misrepresented. So for us then, what big truths do we learn about the mission and the heart of God? What is the mission of God? Yep. <coughs> Seek and restore the lost. Forgiveness and mercy is his religion or his, his mission. And he's known from the beginning what he's going to do. Prophesized by Ezekiel. And the kingdom that we're a part of is love. And it's going to cost us everything, but it's so worth it. We have the good shepherd. And then when you read about that seeking and strengthening the, the weak ones or on the day of cloudiness, you think about Jesus shepherding us, that we're growing, we're growing the kingdom, we're coming alongside other people and he's working in us. And so what about the heart of God here? What do we learn about the heart of God? He's tender toward the broken. Tender towards the broken. It's a pursuing love. It's a great love. He has joy in doing what he does. They're celebrating in heaven. And we are not insignificant to him. We are worth it. And you think about Jesus stopped at nothing, his own demise, in order to bring us back into the fold. Now, as I was studying this, um, sometimes I feel like this over, I don't know, I just like, I kept hearing the 99, the 99, and there's a song. It's called The Reckless Love of God. And when we were at our last um, quarterly meeting, one of the young ladies referenced it in her testimony because this is really a gospel message is what it is. And for her, it was an important song in her walk, you know? So um, 
I just stopped. I pulled over on the side of the road. I'm like, okay, the 99, I'm going to Pandora. I'm typing it in and um, actually went to YouTube. And what came up was um, the, the, not the author, what would you call it? The, the writer of the song, Corey. He had um, went to a live place and he talked about why he wrote the song. So we're going to hear that part. I'm fast forwarding through a lot of the song, but if you take your sheets, you can kind of follow along. Um, the beautiful pictures on it. Aren't those wonderful pictures? Thinking about Jesus and what this parable is saying. Does everybody have a sheet lyric before I start? Yes, we're good. Okay. So what's going to happen is he has sung this song to this audience. He stops in the middle and he gives his testimony and then he finishes up. So at the end, if you want to sing along with him, you can. Um, or just look at the words and, and think about what's being said here. Says so now the tax collectors and sinners are all gathering around to hear Jesus. The Pharisees and teachers of the law mutter, This man welcomes the sinners and eats with them. The religious people are mad. It sets the stage and Jesus pipes up told them this parable. So suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And after he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he goes home. He calls his friends, he calls his neighbors together and says, rejoice with me because I've found my lost sheep. And I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't. <laughs> Man, he's that good. I want to just read a couple thoughts, just share a little bit of the story behind the song, and then we'll sing that bridge one more time and we'll go nuts. We'll see what happens. So when I use the, re the phrase, the reckless love of God, when we say it, we're not saying that God himself is reckless. He's not crazy. We are, however, saying that the way he loves is in many regards quite so. But what I mean is this. He's utterly unconcerned with the consequences of his actions with regard to his own safety, comfort, and well-being. His love isn't crafty or slick. It's not cunning or shrewd. In fact, all things considered, it's quite childlike. And might I even suggest sometimes downright ridiculous. His love bankrupted heaven for you, for me. His love doesn't consider himself first. It isn't selfish or self-serving. He doesn't wonder what he'll gain or lose by putting himself on the line. He simply puts himself out there on the off chance that you and I might look back at him and give him that love in return. His love leaves the 99 to find the one every time. And to many practical adults, that's a foolish concept. But what if he loses the 99 and finding the one, right? What if? Finding that one lost sheep is and will always be supremely important. His love isn't cautious. It's a love that sent his own son to die a gruesome death on a cross. There's no plan B with the love of God. He gives his heart so completely, so preposterously, that if refused, we would think it irreparably broken. Yet he gives himself away again and again and again and again, time and time again. Make no mistake, our sins do pain his heart, and 70 times 7 is a lot of times to get your heart broken. And yet he opens up and allows us back in every single time. 
His love saw you when you hated him and all logic said they'll reject me. He said, no, I don't care what it costs me. I lay my life on the line as long as I get their hearts. To make it personal, his love saw me, broken down kid with regret as deep as the ocean. My innocence and youth poured out like water. And he found me and he put me on his shoulders. And he carried me home. Because he's just that good. He's just that kind. He's a father that never gives up. So as we sing this bridge and chorus one more time, just let it, let it break down those walls tonight. There's no shadow. There's no shadow you won't light up. Mountain you won't climb up. Coming after me. Yeah. There's no wall you won't kick down. Lie you won't tear down, coming after me, yeah, again. There's no shadow you won't light up, bouncing you won't climb up, coming after He's breaking off self-hatred tonight. There's no wall you won't kick down, lie you won't tear down, coming after There's no shadow now. There's no shadow you won't light up, bouncing you won't, come on, let it rise. No wall you won't kick down, I won't. Come on, declare no shadow now. There's no shadow you won't light up. Now see you won't climb up, coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down, I won't tear down, coming after me. One more time, every voice. There's no shadow you won't light up. question is, have you ever felt the pursuing love of God in your life? Have you felt it? And if you have felt it, and you read about this gift, and you think about sinners, and you think about our world, what do we need to do then? What is our action as Christians and being a part of the kingdom? What do we need to do? We need to share the love of God and tell others. Yep. Share the love of God. Look for the lost. Withhold our judgments. Think about our tendency to walk away. 
And may you be so full of God's love that it's projected and you compel people around you to come back, to give them hope. Sorry about that. Judgment is not welcome. It's clear. It does not reflect the one we are yoked to. And their religious pride caused blindness. And I think that through the love of God that we need to understand our importance in the kingdom in order to be able to draw others in. And we're going to transition to the last um, parable that we're going to talk about, the parable of the last son. And I put sons in parentheses because I really think you would find that there's two sons here that are lost. And when he, when, when the writer taught, the writer of the um, song talks about reckless love of God, we're going to see that happening here. <clears throat> and it's probably the most familiar, known as the prodigal son. So we should be able to have a good discussion about what, what we're going to encounter here. And I set this one up just a little bit different because there's so many lessons and so many things in here. I just put the scripture on the page and read, and then I want to talk about it in between. So let's start in Luke 15, verse 11. It says, Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his prop property between them. Okay, so then the question I propose, Father, give me the share of my estate. He wants it before the father is dead. He just can't wait for his father to die. He wants the money now. So how do you, if you think of yourself as the father, what are your thoughts on the request? Have any of your children ever asked you for something that is just like, this isn't going to work? Do you say nothing? Do what they say? What do you think? I think as a parent, you want to um, help your children, and even if it means something like this, but it has to come with a, a condition or a stipulation that you will pay this back. Mm -hmm. That's what we tend to do, and for this, um, the situation in their day when he's telling the story to the people of the time, it's extraordinarily insulting. Anybody who was listening to this would have been like, and then he just did it. The father just gave the inheritance. It would have been a father that maybe lacked a backbone and there would have been great shame within the community. And, um, the child would have typically just been like cut off from the father or they went to, they went to got what they had asked for there, but he just, he just gives it because it's, um, it would have shocked them and it would have left the father with no honor. So that's, that's the setup and that's the context behind it. So then in verse 13, it says, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country. So what's interesting about this is that the son had a heart condition. He didn't just one day wake up and be like, I want my inheritance and I'm leaving. It was stewing all along. And just like when we do things that are wrong or other people do things that are wrong, it doesn't usually just happen. It's a series of a heart condition. Something's going on. Something's happening. So he sets off for the distant country and there he squandered his wealth and wild living. And that's where the prodigal definition comes in. After he spent everything, there was a famine in the whole country. 
and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country. Just want to stop there for a second. So he has all this stuff. He squanders it. A famine comes. And then what does he do? He works. He kind of picks himself up by his bootstraps. He's going to try to fix this all himself. He's disturbed by the lifestyle and less about the fact at this point that he's been lost away from the father. Do you see what I'm getting at here? When we have problems, when when the world has problems, they go to their self-help books. They go to things to try to like pick themselves up and fix it. But one thing leads to another. So it says he hired himself out to the citizen of that country. And right away, I think the citizen, we're citizens of the kingdom. And here he's being a citizen of the world. Okay, and this, what they did here is they sent him to the field to feed the pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with pods that the pigs were eating. So he's, he wants the pig slop. That's how hungry he is. Now, in this story, and in the context in which Jesus is telling in the time, if you thought it was dishonoring for the father to do what he did, the child to ask for that inheritance, it would have been downright shocking for a Jew to have been with the swine, working in the swine. So things are going from bad to worse. And he just wants to eat with the pigs too. Like it's just, he is, he is at a personal low as far as a Jewish standard would be. What do you think? And it, it really, Jesus is painting a very unclean picture of what's happening. This, this boy is really detestable. Okay, in the sight of the, what the Jews would be, what the keepers of the law, um, the the Pharisees and the teachers and that. So what do you think Jesus is saying about the life of sin here? It's a slippery slope. The slippery slope. It looks mighty appealing, but then it's bound to something like slavery would be, being enslaved to it. There are consequences. Consequences. Mm-hmm. When I was teaching at the jail at one point, um, I was talking to these ladies that were in jail, and they were trying to describe to me their, their lives and telling me different stories. And the reoccurring theme there was how bound they felt, like they could not get out of their situation. One thing led to another. They were poor. They're going to get back out on the street, and they don't have money. What are they going to do? They're going to go back to prostituting or doing whatever they did. It was like this vicious circle of slavery slavery to what that life was very difficult and and jesus is saying here we're not leaving these people alone this isn't you know how much dirty you think they are i love them and i'm seeking after them so in what ways you know um in what ways is experiencing the consequences of sin to a person's benefit when the father just let him go what did he know Sometimes you have to learn life experiences the hard way, I guess. Yeah, sometimes it's a better teacher, you know. And what is it kind of, if you think about God and you think about us, what do we have? What do we, sometimes you don't even want to have it, but you have it. Oh, what does God give us? Conscience. Free will. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you're like, I just wish, you know, you would robot me a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> But life's lessons might be a harder teacher, but it's effective, and we have free will. 
So it's easy to look at this parable and say it's for the unsaved. But have you ever thought of yourself going to a distant country, you know, any kind of place that you don't really want the Father to see? I'm not looking for specific examples, but I hope we can at least acknowledge the fact that there's areas in which we struggle day to day and that we need the help of Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the strengthening of him. So in verse 17, it says, when he came to his senses, and there you see that, like, the Father knows best. You have free will. When you come to your senses, that's a better teacher than it could have been saying, no, you're not going to do this. He had a heart condition. So when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. So he's kind of talking to himself, how he's going to, you know, how we talk to ourselves, <laughs> how we're going to do things. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. Okay, so what is this a picture of? What's happening in this heart? Repentance. repentance. And why is it repentance? Not only is he realizing the need, but what is, what is he doing? Turning around. Yeah, turning around, changing direction. And maybe it was a seed that had been so and so long ago. You know, and, and he knew what the father had was better for him. And don't we come to those same realizations? Like maybe we're going into some chartered water that seems fun and great, but then you just know, you know, you're in a distant country. This isn't what God has for you. This isn't what the kingdom life is. So, but while he was still a long way off, the father saw him. Now, what does this tell you about the father? He's watching. He's watching. He's watching. And waiting. And he was filled with compassion for him and he ran to his son. Now I was reading about this and you know, think about the garb that they're in, kind of those dress things. I don't even know what they're called, but it said in all the commentaries, men of dignity did not run. And the reason they didn't is because they would have had to hike up that dress thing. Do we know what it's called? A robe. A robe. Hike up their robe and that would have exposed their ankles and that just you didn't do that. That would have been again. This father is reckless in a way. The compassion that he has, the reckless love that he has, that he ran to his son. And then he threw his arms around him and kissed him. The man who was just with all the stinky pigs, he went and kissed him. And think about the Jews were thinking. So this whole story altogether that Jesus is telling in that time, it would have been like, the father, totally reckless. What? This is how you love. And then think about the people that are the sinners who felt completely rejected that he's talking to, to say, this is how you love. So the father humbled himself. And this is a picture of Jesus, right? To be found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself, did not consider himself to be, you know, to have that equality with God. It's a picture of humility. It's a picture of the gospel, really, is what he's doing. He's taking them deeper. He started with the sheep, he moved to the woman, and then he gives us a picture of fatherly love. You know, he's taking them deeper. What is he trying to emphasize? He can never be too far gone. Yep, he can never be too far gone. A love like 
you can't even imagine is what he has. And we know what's to come, the cross, right? His pursuit of us ended in his own death. The son said to him in verse 21, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and he is found. So they begin to celebrate. Just like all of the other parables, we see the reoccurring theme of celebrating the lost. We see the clear kingdom message in all of these. He came to seek, forgive, and restore. The father in this parable did not, when his son came back, say, I told you so. You shouldn't have squandered. He said, I love you so. And then he went and restored him back to sonship. And I want to talk about the significance of these items. So the robe significance, what do you think that was about? His nakedness. His nakedness, the, the covering. And it, the robe would have been from the father's. There's probably like a color to it or, or something to know that th this is my son and he's welcome here. He's accepted back in. The ring significance, what do you think that might have been about? What did rings do in those times? Authority? Authority and what else? What, you know, if you ever watch... The wax, like the mark of who it is? Yeah, like, a, like the mark of who it is, a wax on a contract. Yeah. Like to say, you're a part of this family and we're sealing this in. We're giving you recognition and you are part of the family business now. And the sandals would be significant in, in dignity because children would not be without sandals. Slaves would be barefoot. So to say, you're not a slave, you're a child. And so, of course, Jesus is telling a story here, but in the bigger picture, what does this realization mean to us? What does it mean to them? How does it make you feel? When you think about it, a covering, acceptance, in the family business, you're a child. I think it's what moved me to tears earlier, to just be so thankful for that pursuit, for that love. Rejoice in my acceptance of what we have. And wanting to think today in the here and now as I'm living my life and Jesus is guiding all of us as Christians to be who he wants us to be, to not hide when we fail. To let him come, restore our weakness, put us on his shoulders. And then a sense of, I hope you have a sense of, I want there to be some parties in heaven. Let's go start bringing in people. Let's be eager to do the work of the family business. So then we go to the second part. So we have an older son here. And I want you to think about as we're reading this, who does he represent here in, in Jesus's audience? And, and, you know, how in which ways is he lost as well? Meanwhile, 
the older son was in the field. He came near the house. He heard music and dancing. So he called out of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he was back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So let's just pause and talk about cultural stuff there. Refused to be a part of the community. Refused to be a part of what was happening in the celebration. This also would have been very dishonoring to the father that he's going to stay out because the older brother would have had some authority and for him to just totally reject it would be like not going to the banquet, you know, that we had talked about, that, that sort of refusal to be a part of it. So his father went out and pleaded with him. And, and, and here again, this humility that we see in the father, it wouldn't have been the typical. It would have been more like, well, then you're out, you know. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. What he's saying is you've never done this for me. Never even given, you know, I think he said a goat. And back then that would have been a lesser piece of meat than the fattened calf. So what do you think about this? Can you see his point? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, identifying with the you know, like family dynamic of, mm -hmm. you know, the one who didn't do the bad stuff. Right. <laughs> like the black sheep gets, mm -hmm. yeah. gets the glory almost. But what does it sound like? When you think about what does this sound like in the audience that Jesus is teaching, who is he describing? Sounds like the Pharisees, they followed the rules, but they didn't have their heart in it. Right. right. They slaved, you know. It's, it it's, wasn't bothered to do all this stuff. It wasn't right. the right reason. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it, wasn't, it wasn't the right reason. The voice of the um, Pharisees' opinion about the sinners was, we, they're not welcome. Look what they're doing. Look how good I am. I'm following all of your rules. They didn't want to rejoice over the sinners. They were unclean. By association, they defiled. So, so far, the parable is a picture of lost sinners. And at the end, again, Jesus is addressing the pious religious leaders in the picture of the oldest brother. In verses 29 and 30, and I believe I, I, believe I, I underlined it, what are the significant words that we know how he feels at this point and how we know he is lost? What do you pick out in verse 29? What does he say? He's been a slave. He's yeah. been a slave. He's been a slave. He's enslaving for the father. <coughs> and then um, what's the, the next word that he uses? The son of yours. Yeah, this brother of yours doesn't acknowledge him as a brother. The Pharisees were not acknowledging the fellow Jews that were the tax collectors and the sinners as their brothers. That's for sure. So what does it say about his heart condition? We can see his point to a point, but what's actually happening? What's the heart condition there? Jealous. Jealousy? Self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. It seems like when you talk about slavery, you're, you're, it's more of an obligation than it is out of love. 
And again, I, I always bring up these beatitudes because they're so amazing. But he, he's saying, this is upside down. You don't have this right. It's not just about the letter of the law and looking good on the outside. It's about what your heart is doing. And this boy's heart was not right. So therefore, I feel it's the lost sons. And Jesus is hitting both. He felt a relationship with his dad because of the work he did. You know, not because of the love of the dad. And then the, and then the father says, my son, you are always with me and everything that I have is yours. What does that mean? Well, he's trying to express to that older son that he's really been important to him the whole time. Mm -hmm. And so um, the inside temperament of the oldest son is just coming out. And he's been able to hide it as long as he behaved and he wasn't challenged. Mm -hmm. in any way, but now loving his younger brother presents the older son with a challenge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was just waiting for his dad to die too. Mm -hmm. yeah. But he stayed home to do it. And he thought he deserved it all. <laughs> right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And he was just a little bit better for that. Right. Yeah. In his mind. In his mind. Mm -hmm. Was there another thought? Michelle, I was just going to say, no. I, 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 when um, Paul was getting ready to share his testimony for youth group. He's like, I don't really have a story. Like, sometimes we celebrate people that have a little more razzle-dazzle yeah. to their story. Mm -hmm. And we don't celebrate people who have been with the Father faithfully serving. Right. Mm -hmm. So, I think it's, uh, it's all, I mean, the older brother has a lot of fault for sure, but I think it's a reminder of being encouragement to people that are faithfully serving. Yeah. And maybe not walking through a lot of the stuff that the younger brother did, but the people that it's like, they're faithfully with the Father, and it's like, to celebrate that too. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, you don't hear a lot of those testimonies, do you? Because they don't seem as. And people think I have a boring testimony. Yeah. It's like, no, it's powerful. It is. And we're spared from all that. Mm -hmm. And when the father says, my son, he's inviting him into full relationship, you know, not just this, the working thing. The slave. It's my son. It's right? my son. He called them both his son. Right. And, and he gives him everything I have. I mean, everything I have is yours. Mm -hmm. So, and you think about um, the the Pharisees were God's chosen people, you know, and, and they had that covenant relationship. But they're so angry, and they didn't they didn't believe in Jesus, and they were rejecting because he didn't look like what they had brought it to be. And so, um, I was thinking about this and thinking. Um, Everything that we have, everything that Jesus or everything that God has is ours. And what does that mean to us? And, and I think about everything in Jesus dying on the cross for us. I, this is everything that I have for you. Come and be in relationship with me. You know, and in this past weekend, Pastor Daryl taught from 1 John 5, 11 through 12. And I'm just going to read it again. It says, God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not know the Son of God does not have life. So both eternally, you know, we have this, in Jesus, we have eternal life, but also for the here and now, to have that abundant life because of Jesus. Everything that I have is yours in Jesus. You know, in this, this special covenant relationship that they had with, with, um, with God, 
and it all spoke to Jesus's coming. They just weren't having it. You know, they were just, they were just lost. And I feel like at the end here, there's not much of an ending. We don't know what happened. Well, we do know what happened. Some of the Pharisees changed over, but it's like Jesus ends it and saying, are you going to welcome? Are you going to welcome the sinners or not? Am I going to be enough? I, this is everything that I've given you. You have a choice to make, you know, to the Pharisees, to us, to people that are lost. So what does it mean to us? Well, it means everything. It's our salvation. You know, and that's the kingdom insight. The kingdom insight is God's heart is love. He's pursuing. His mission is to save the lost, restore the, you know, restore, bring you about the family business. And it is our job as disciples to go out and do the same thing, you know, to go out and come alongside these people. Come alongside the world. And also to know that when we're hurting, to go back to God as well. Any other thoughts? Okay, so at the bottom of this, write down this text. Marsha's going to be teaching Matthew 21 through 16. And Luke 7, 36 to 48. And just be thinking about that and reading that beforehand. So when she reads and talks, we can have a good discussion and know what's going on. So this is it for me. I can't believe it. <laughs> She's going to be teaching and then we're doing soup luncheon. So let's just end with a word of prayer. And, and really, oh, I need one more soup. <laughs> so we got the dessert and the two soups? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. All right, let's just close in, close in prayer. Lord, I thank you for coming and revealing the kingdom insights. I thank you for not leaving it in the hands of false teachers. I thank you for what we have in your word. And I pray that we would just passionately seek it, seek it, to seek you. And to know that um, it is our mission to come alongside and, and be a light to those and um, lose the judgment. Help us to lose the judgment, Lord. Help us to welcome the sinners. Help us not to be blinded by religious outside things. Work on our hearts, Lord. I thank you for today. I thank you so much, Jesus, for what you've done. I pray this all in your name. Amen. Amen. Amen.